Ask any ex-homicide cop about their biggest regret, and they'll tell you about the one that got away. That case they couldn't quite crack. Mrs James was stabbed 68 times in both the front and back, and had three gashes in the skull. Some people would say, draw a line in the sand and move on, but I've always had this view. The answer is always in the file. Ronnie Dools is your classic homicide cop. His face lined by years of late nights, fuelled with bad takeaway food and worse coffee. Ron spent 25 years as a homicide detective. This year he retired, after close to 40 years in the force, and he's moved to Queensland where he can stay warm and finally relax a little. He hung up his boots with a near-perfect strike rate, 99% of cases solved. But there's one case that he can't quite let go. It was the first homicide case he ever worked on, and it's never been solved. Homicide and forensic squad detectives spent today painstakingly searching the murder scene. Maria James was murdered in 1980. Mrs James, a mother of two boys, aged 13 and 11... For more than three decades, Maria's sons Mark and Adam have lived in a kind of holding pattern. There is absolutely no doubt whoever killed Maria told somebody. This is Trace, an investigation into the murder of Maria James. I'm Rachel Brown and I've spent years covering police and court rounds, but for the last couple of years it's been this case that's really got its hooks into me. Because I heard something on the grapevine that made me suspect something, or someone, had been overlooked in the original investigation. A piece of evidence. A trace. Turns out I wasn't wrong. There's far more to this story than police ever knew. Thornbury is a little north of Melbourne's city centre, about half an hour by tram. Before its wine bars and eateries came along in the late 90s, it was a relentlessly and unromantically working-class suburb, with rising unemployment amongst a generation of displaced manufacturing workers. Maria James runs the bookstore on the high street, living out the back of the shop with her two boys. Adam's 11, he has cerebral palsy in Tourette's and has a bit of trouble communicating. Mark's the eldest, and at 13, Maria expects him to look out for his younger brother too. Maria is the daughter of Italian immigrants. She loves to cook. She loves her boys. It's a winter morning in June, and she's cooking them their favourite breakfast before school, scrambled eggs. She said to me, if anything happens to me, I'm to make sure that my brother Adam is looked after. It's not the first time she said it. The weekend before, she'd talked to him about Adam, about looking after him, with that same intensity. He's not quite sure what to make of it. He just thinks his mum is being a bit weird. But he promises, scoffs down his eggs and toast, and heads off for school. Maria leaves soon after, taking Adam on the short walk to the bus stop for the trip to his special school. She watches him get on the bus, waves him goodbye and walks back to the bookshop, stopping to buy a cake for a guest she's expecting later that morning. She gets on with her day. There's things to organise for the boys, the bookstore to look after. Around 11.30, she phones her ex-husband. 
John James is a Fitzroy town clerk, and they've been separated a few years now, but they're on good terms. John's just stepped out, so his secretary answers. Usually Maria is up for a chat, but today she seems curt. So the secretary tells Maria she'll get John to call her straight back. He does, and what happens on that phone call will become crucial evidence. John died in 1996, but back in 1980, he told the ABC's Nationwide program about that phone call. Maria answers the phone, then asks him to hang on, because she's got someone with her in the kitchen. John listens, thinks he can hear an argument, but can't quite make it out. She gave a startled yelp. Um, There was more conversation, one-sided conversation, a period of silence. Um, And this went on for a period of several minutes. So he starts whistling into the phone to attract someone's attention. Nothing. Then there was another yelp not a yelp of fear. She was startled, but uh, during the whole time I could hear her on the phone, she seemed to be um, talking to somebody that she knew. Do you believe it's possible? So at this point, John James starts to get a little bit concerned. I uh, told my secretary that I'd better go in and see if there was any problem. So on my calculations, John arrives at the bookshop somewhere between 12.10 and 12.20. This is John still speaking on the Nationwide program, in a pretty florid TV recreation of the crime scene. I found the place locked up. Uh, I couldn't get in through the front door. I came around the back. I couldn't get in through the back door. I tried several times back and forwards trying to get in. As he rounds the front again, a curtain inside the bookshop catches his attention. Soon after, a customer buzzing the front doorbell sees this curtain move, but he can't make out a face. John borrows a neighbour's phone and calls Maria's number. It's engaged. The phone probably still off the hook from when they last spoke. He's panicking now and decides that he has to get in there any way he can. So he climbs in a window. I sort of was calling out, standing here in the kitchen, I was was calling out to see if I could get any response. Um, there was no answer, so I, uh, I then proceeded into the lounge room and turned the light on. I just felt that there was something very wrong in the place, so I glanced out of the side of my eye into the boys' bedroom and could see nothing. Switched the, the light on to uh, Maria's bedroom and I saw a body on the floor. The killer was behind the bedroom door. Uh, at the time, John uh, was looking in the door. I think if John had a probably walked right into the bedroom, uh, John might have been uh, the second victim. I could tell straight away that she was dead, her eyes and mouth were open, there was blood everywhere. I I just freaked, it was really a horrific sight. Uh, He panics, he goes back out through uh, the back door and uh, makes contact uh, with Triple O to get the police to attend. He waits for the police, pacing up and down the back lane wondering how he's going to break the news to his two sons. And when he gets back to the front of the bookshop... He realises the front door and the door to the internal residence is now open. And there's someone in there. It's a customer, casually looking through the shelves like it's any other Tuesday. He's shaken up and asks her how she got in. She says she found the bookshop door wide open. 
If they'd been there a minute or two before, they'd have seen him. A guy running from the direction of the bookshop, who's nearly hit by a passing car. With a lady who's driving along High Street, who sees a man run from the front of the shop, cross High Street and then run west along Hutton Street. And then there's a guy who's working at the railway line who sees uh, a guy about five foot eight, chubby, hairy arms uh, running. And we believe that that's the person who's responsible. Police believe Mr James disturbed the murderer who fled from the shop and was nearly knocked down by a passing motorist as he ran across the road. Maria's son Mark was collected from school by his local parish priest. He broke the news to me and, um, you know, I could barely stand up and after he'd said it and he was having to half uh, drag me into the, the, the principal's office there. The priest took him home. It was now a crime scene. It was difficult for me to take it all in. I can see a flurry of activity. Um, the police are there. Um, later on, I think the media arrived. And my, 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 my dad's there. There are, there are passers-by and, uh, you know, standing around watching. It was almost like my life uh, stopped uh, and, and everything just stopped dead. That night, Mark and his brother Adam went to stay with their dad and stepmom, with nothing more than the uniforms they'd worn to school. Later on, I was allowed to take out a few toys, but it was more or less get in, rush, get out, and my, my dad didn't really want me taking too much. And he said, don't worry about all your old stuff, I'll buy you all new stuff. By then, the shop had been converted into a makeshift command centre for the police operation, with Ron working his first big case. And then people became aware that we were working in the bookshop, so they would um, come into the bookshop and come through the residence and we'd sit down at a table and talk to them. We worked out of that shop for two to three months, and I didn't know whether it was normal or not, but later on I realised that Working out of a crime scene definitely wasn't normal. Uh, we utilised things in the house, we utilised the cutlery, we utilised um, the crockery. So if we were making a sandwich, we'd just um, use the fridge, um, we'd bring in our own uh, butter and stuff, but to some extent, I guess you treated it as your home for 12, 14 hours a day. Ron would go on to investigate 320 homicides in his career, but his first crime scene is still clear as day. You walk through the uh, shop, which was stacked with um, secondhand uh, books, and then there was a glass door which had a curtain on it, and you walked into uh, the residence. As soon as you went uh, through that door, you looked into the right, which was Maria James's bedroom. Uh, she had a white um, shag pile carpet. Uh, the carpet was totally uh, blood-stained. Uh, there was blood on the bed. Uh, in 1980, uh, we didn't have cleaners and uh, that bedroom stayed as it was for the whole duration. So you shut the door and you walk past a, a bloodied uh, crime scene. But I'm now sitting uh, in her lounge room. You're looking at Maria's photo, you're looking at Mark's photo, and you're looking at Adam's photo, trying to solve who ultimately took her life. Maria's son, Mark, says he finally found his way back into the house a couple of weeks after the murder. 
I was strictly told not to go into mum's bedroom. Well, telling a 13-year-old that is almost like an invitation. And I opened the bedroom door and all of the furniture was gone, but there was bloodstains all over the carpet. Um, and uh, that was quite, quite upsetting. What he really wanted to do was collect his favourite things from the house. He wasn't allowed. That was my home, my home for years, for, for 13 years. But he didn't resent the police intrusion. He remembers the detectives with brown suits and bushy moustaches in a nest of paperwork strewn across his dining table, which was basically a billiard table with the board perched on top. I was in, encouraged that something's happening, they're, they're doing their job, and gee, wow, there's a lot of police here. They're taking it very seriously. I also met Ron Idles um, for the first time there, and he's a great old-fashioned um, police officer who's dedicated to his job. People can give police any information about the murder. There are two telephone lines to the van. They are four. As information came flooding in, the detectives were writing down various persons of interest in a little red book. Imagine your faithful A to Z address book, pretty much like that. If the person who provided the name information was Bill Smith, we indexed it under Bill, we indexed it under Smith. If he spoke about a red car, we indexed it under R for red car, and then we would index it again under car red, and then if the rego number was there, we'd put that in the index, so everything was cross-indexed. But that took um, Jack Jacobs, who was a sergeant, that was nearly his sole responsibility because there's probably 1,400 pieces of information. I've tried hard to get my hands on this little red book, but while the case is cold, it's still open, and that means it's off limits to the public. Despite Victoria Police giving my investigation its blessing, the Homicide Squad has been a bit cagey with details. But because Ron's recently retired, he's happy to help me out with any details he can remember. He agrees to meet me at the Victorian Coroner's Court. I'm led into a little meeting room, and while I wait for Ron, I flick through the small booklet of crime scene photos. I'd seen a lot of gruesome photos in my court days, but this is hard. The first photo was of the front of the bookshop. Every square inch of the front window was plastered with book covers. In the photos of the kitchen, on the bench, there's a newsletter with a reminder of an upcoming dinner dance. Below it, the cutlery drawer hangs open. Further through the photos is the bedroom. There's floral carpet, wallpaper, curtains and bedding. Above the bedroom door is a reprint of Gustav Klimt's painting, The Kiss. Then I come to the photos of Maria's body. She's lying face up. It looks like she has white crumbs on her black jumper. Then I realise those are the knife marks. Her right leg is tucked under her. Her wrists are bound and rest on her stomach. Two pillows have been pulled down and they lie beside her head and feet. Bloodstains speckle the floral carpet. In the boys' room across the hall, one photo shows a rotary dial telephone the receiver still out of its cradle. After I've looked at the photos for a while, Ron arrives. 
He tells me he has to think of these kind of photos as part of a jigsaw puzzle. He says that's the only way he coped for 25 years as a homicide detective. You haven't seen these for how long? Uh, probably since 1981. Yeah. And what are your first We go back through all the photos and later we sit down to talk through about what it all means. And I would say that from the amount of stab wounds, 69 stab wounds, there's no doubt she knew who the person was who killed her. Do frenzied attacks always suggest that to you, that the victim knew their killer? You know, I've investigated over 320 homicides. Those where you have absolute multiple stab wounds like this, uh, I don't think I've ever charged anyone where there was no connection between uh, the killer and, and the deceased. And what were some other clues around the house that, that she knew him? Uh, well, there was two coffee cups, uh, so she obviously felt um, comfortable. Uh, when she's rung John James, uh, whoever the person is there realises that whatever he's done or whatever he said is going to be uh, uncovered because uh, the ex-husband's coming out, and from that point on, uh, quite clearly, it, it escalates. There are no wounds on Marie's arms from self-defence, suggesting she was most likely first attacked from behind. I think she's tried to make her way to the bedroom where she knew that there was a lock on the door. The person responsible has grabbed the knife, which is really a weapon of opportunity. So the person who is responsible didn't go there with an intention to kill her. She's been followed into the bedroom where she's been attacked and then eventually um, she's been tied up. And I think her hands are more likely to have been tied up after she was stabbed. To get another expert opinion on the crime scene photos, I head down the corridor from the coroner's court to the Victorian Institute of Forensic Medicine. Forensic pathologist David Ranson walks me through Marie James's pathology report. And here we've got a platinum of injuries. We've got head injuries, we've got neck injuries, we've got front of chest, we've got back of chest, we've got abdomen, we've got loins. Um, we've got lower back, so a wide variety of areas have been stabbed in this individual. There is, however, a distinctive stab pattern on Marie's chest. What is very, very striking here is the clustering, and um, particularly discrete clusters above both breasts and the upper pectoral regions below the collarbones. As he flips through the photos, one of the things that catches his interest is the photo of Marie's arms. Tied around the wrists. Interesting. David agrees that in this case, the binding around the wrists may have been done after Maria died. Sometimes as part of stabilising a body so you can move it around um, and um, may just be part of some ritualistic behaviour. If there's no particular hemorrhages, if there's no signs of bruising, then that would suggest that the ligatures are applied around the time of death. Finally, David notes there's been significant blunt force to the head. The woman was tied uh, by her hands. And that may, of course, affect the brain and may, of course, uh, cause a person to have a lowered conscious state. The killer has uh, tortured the woman or played with her uh, during the killing process. Enabling them to be more ritualistically, if you like, um, uh, assaulted. Uh, we believe that he's possibly a, uh, a person who's uh, somewhat a sexual maniac. Police say that in any murder investigation, there's a precious 72-hour window. If you don't have a breakthrough then, it's going to be an uphill battle. So priority one was finding eyewitnesses. 
Ronnie Dawes' boss, Brian Ritchie, told the media at the time that two people did clock a man racing from the direction of the bookshop. A railway signalman and the female driver who nearly hit him as he sprinted across High Street. The woman had to brake violently to avoid colliding with him. Um, we have looked at what she has told us. We have got a photo fit drawn. The man police are looking for is in his late 30s to early 40s, about 166 centimetres, with dark receding hair and a medium build. Police started handing out flyers. My name's Detective Sergeant Jacobs from Homicide Squad. We're circulating these circulars around all taxi drivers. But it turned out there were quite a lot of short, podgy, balding men running around Thornbury that day. So between the flyers and their own inquiries, the police had a lot of people on their radar. And most of them lived or worked around that one little pocket of High Street. When the police were questioning me and, you know, were asking me questions along the lines, you know, had Mum had um, any arguments with anyone. The only one that come to mind that I knew of was um, the real estate agent. I actually walked them into his office and um, stood there a couple of metres away from him, pointing at him. Very early on, someone told us that uh, he'd had a sexual relationship with Maria. She told me that um, she was very disappointed and upset um, in him, that she didn't know he was married and, and she'd broken off the relationship with him because of that. And he confirmed that relationship, but he was alibied on the basis, I think at the time of uh, the murder, he was either showing a client a house which was for sale, but in the end he was um, totally eliminated. I went looking for this real estate agent. I pursued this one guy for months and months. It turned out to be the wrong real estate agent. Sorry, Peter. Then I found the right one. That took six months. And his alibi holds up. Then there was the guy seen on Maria's doorstep on the morning of the murder, carrying a briefcase. He was a loner, lived with his mother, and he read these magazines which come out of America. This turned out to be a man who lived around the corner from the bookshop, called Mario Falcucci. Some of the articles in those magazines he was carrying caught Ron's attention. They were all um, had a sexual connotation. Mario had gone to the shop to try to sell those comics to Maria. Now he admits to going there and talking to Maria, and Maria said, I don't want to buy uh, those magazines, I don't want them in my shop. He says, yes, I did have a bit of an argument with her. I raised my voice, but I left and I went back home. And then there was also the issue of the twine found in his yard. We took out a warrant and searched his house and in his backyard he grew tomatoes and the tomatoes were tied to a stake with um, green hay bands similar to what was used to tie Maria's hands up. Mario had also made a strange 20 kilometre round trip the day after the murder to take his trousers to a city dry cleaner. We found a receipt um, in his bedroom which was for uh, Fletcher Jones and he'd had the grey trousers um, dry clean. Now Fletcher Jones have actually made a note on the documentation. There's a stain on it which they thought was similar to blood. So for Ron, Mario was front and centre in the list of suspects. But there was also another potential love interest. Um, from time to time she'd spoken about a man who um, she'd either had a relationship or was intending to have a relationship with 
and he worked for uh, Telecom. Ron found this telecom worker. He admitted visiting the bookshop occasionally, but denied having any kind of deeper relationship with Maria. And uh, we interviewed him at the Homicide Squad and he denied any uh, involvement whatsoever. Two days after um, he was interviewed, uh, he committed suicide. It certainly aroused uh, our suspicions and he left a note and I think the note made reference to uh, being interviewed um, by the Homicide Squad. So the note talks about the interview, but it certainly wasn't a confession. So all that leaves is more questions. Why would he commit suicide two days after being uh, interviewed? Uh, was he worried that he was going to be caught? Or was he a person who was already suffering from some mental illness? He died before DNA testing was around. But maybe if he has surviving family members, they could offer a DNA sample. That's uh, possible, yeah. If he, if he does have relatives, but I don't recall talking to any of his relatives. And someone, maybe this telecom guy, maybe someone else, organised a flower delivery with an affectionate message the week of Maria's death. Uh, we went to that shop and uh, the person who came in, the best they could remember it, a man came in, paid cash and asked for the, uh, the comments to be written on a card and sent um, to Maria James. Ron never did find out who sent those flowers. There was also a garbage man who'd taken a fancy to her, apparently, rocking up on her doorstep most mornings for a chat around 5am. Police would dub him the 510 man. There were other shady characters in Maria's life on High Street. There was the family friend, who would later serve jail time for pedophilia. And there was still Mario with his magazines. He really got to Ron. Like a jigsaw piece he couldn't quite make fit. And for a guy like Ron, who's so dogged about finding answers, those puzzle pieces make life hard sometimes. You know, I missed uh, many, many Christmases. I missed uh, birthdays, uh, the oldest daughter, Jane. I missed her 18th. I missed her 21st. And the night of her engagement, uh, there was a murder. So I actually went to her engagement, got home at midnight, showered and uh, went to work. DNA testing wasn't available in Australia when Maria was murdered. But more than 25 years later, when technology advanced, Ron had the evidence from Maria's murder tested, and he had a win. It was blood from uh, the pillow slip, which indicated uh, that it wasn't all Maria's blood, that quite clearly we had the blood of a male person. Now, when you look at the frenzied attack, uh, and I've been involved where We've actually arrested people after uh, stabbing someone, um, you know, 20, 30 times. Most times they will have an injury themselves because uh, they go into this uh, frenzied attack, uh, their hand slips off the uh, handle of the knife down onto the blade. Ron finally had what he believed to be the killer's DNA profile. So then he tracked down Mario Falcucci. He was in a, a nursing home and uh, we took a buckle swab from him, he licked it like an ice cream, and then that was analysed and found not to be a match to the DNA that we had at the scene. After a quarter of a century, Ron's strongest lead was a dead end. The case grew cold. Detectives went back to their lives and moved on to other cases. They had to wait until 2013, 33 years after Maria's murder 
for the next big lead to surface. It would point in a completely unexpected direction, just down the road from Maria's house, towards the church. The very same church where Maria's funeral had been held. This, this led me to believe that there's something going on here. This, this church has been involved in the murder of my mum. We're going to the church on the next episode of Trace. Maria's is one of 1,300 cold cases in Australia, waiting on resolution. If you know anything about this case, write to us at trace at abc.net.au. We still want to talk to anyone who knew the telecom man who took his own life. And we'd also like to hear from Jeanette Hodson. She's the driver who nearly hit the suspected killer as he ran across the road in Thornbury, Melbourne, back on the 17th of June, 1980. You can follow the investigation, including photos, witness statements, videos and maps at our website. Subscribe to The Trace podcast on iTunes or the ABC radio app. If this story has raised concerns for you or someone you know, you can contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or Beyond Blue on 1300 22 46 36. I'm Rachel Brown and this is Trace. Trace.